takes real bravery to start a business. And in her book, A Hundred Days of Brave, Yolanthi Gabri gives you a step-by-step process of how to do it. It takes bravery, it takes courage, but you need to have some know-how, and Yolanthi gives you that in this book. I think you're going to enjoy listening to Yolanthi Gabri and talking about A Hundred Days of Brave. All right. Welcome to Your Next Re, Yolanthi Gabri. Now tell me all about 100 Days of Brave and who should read this book. 100 Days of Brave will help you build a business that you love in three months. And it is effectively for anybody who has that little inkling that they'd like a life of more flexibility, perhaps a working life that's more in tune with their own values. So whether you're an 18-year-old or whether you're a 65-year-old, there's bound to be some few bits of wisdom you'll find in this book. There really was too. I um I started reading this book and it's very much pitched at women. Yeah, the the pink cover and the hundred days of brave. It's it's very much pitched at women, which was really cool. But yeah, I'm not your target market, and I got tons from it. I really did. I I found there was lots of stuff that I kind of a fair bit of I've run businesses for a long time, so a fair bit of stuff I knew. But if you you could see that if you didn't know a lot of these things that it would be a really helpful sort of step-by-step process. Was that, was that what you were after when you, when you set out to write this book? Absolutely. I, I think as somebody who's worked in the business mentoring space for like 14 years, I'd seen again and again these huge blind spots, whether people are male or female, however they identify, um, in working out how to see if they have a minimum viable product, how to be compliant, how to recruit safely, how to scale their business. And I wanted something that was dead easy that just took you step by step. Yeah, you really did because it you, you did exactly that. You sort of went step by step and you could – it was always pretty easy. If you wanted to flick through a few little bits because you knew them, you could. If you didn't know any of this stuff, to be able to understand what copyright is and how to how to get a URL and how to get your socials lined up and all of this sort of stuff, it was it was a really cool step by step process. Which I think, if you're starting business for a first time, would be sent from heaven. Yeah, and I do have feedback from people who are at different stages of business maturation, um, but they've enjoyed the book because, as you identified, Luke, there are some parts that you definitely knew, but perhaps some other parts that you knew you wanted to take more action on in your business, and these were the basic, like the, the garden path to lead you, you down to tuning up aspects of your business that could be improved. Yeah, can we can we jump into a couple of them? Because yeah, a few of them... Um, trimesters we're having a trimester to give birth to a business take me through take me through your three trimesters and what they're all about okay so firstly the the trimesters um and um earlier in our conversation you spoke about the the book being focused on women and i guess my my focus personally is on female financial independence and successful female business ownership so that's an aspect of the way that the book has been written and I having um, having had a child and been in the process of a physical creation it's in some ways I could really hearken it to the way that you you, you you build a business it's its own kind of baby as well so whilst it kind of was focused on um, on, on females because of my personal interest it is valuable for anybody so don't be freaked out by the trimesters blokes if you're listening that's what I'm saying <laughs> is critical it's about ideation and that's this liminal space where we're really um, delving into our own interests the intuition that we have about what might be a good business and critically doing the research 
to uh, be able to solidly understand if that intuition is actually going to be a goer in the market. So that's the first trimester. And that is a time of incredible energy and often having to bat away other people's opinions about what they might be thinking about what we want to do with our life and with our business. The second trimester is really about compliance and the, uh, the nuts and bolts of running a business that I find a lot of people shy away from. I'm not sure about you, Luke, but I meet lots of people with incredible business ideas who um, it's never for want of the business idea being good that the business is struggling or failing. It tends to be more because of like interpersonal managerial issues or issues around not having consulted with professionals like accountants and lawyers to really secure their businesses so they know how to operate in the space. I think you've almost got to go back to that that first trimester and I think one of the problems when you want to start a business is that most people, if you cut them, they don't bleed entrepreneur. Most people are a bit more safe and want to sort of, you know, oh, I don't want to put my head up too much. And I think one of the one of the hassles with that is we tend to skip over your first trimester. We don't fully look at a way a business could work because the ways that won't work just jump out at us so quickly that it actually kind of kills your enthusiasm. Would you agree with that, that, that to really spend a lot of time expanding what that first trimester could be before you kill something, before it hasn't had room to grow? Yeah, and I think it's also important that we share our business ideas with people who are appropriate to understand and know them. Like it's it's not good to like just spill the top three ideas into a random Facebook group with people who aren't experts. They can't give you good feedback on your business concept or like, you know, vomiting into the LinkedIn um, ethosphere. Um, I think that spending longer on that period of um, self-inquiry and market research leads to better business outcomes. But, you know, a lot of, um, <laughs> a lot of businesses, uh, you know, they fail because of people giving irrelevant feedback or people just never like having a, a proper crack at investing in themselves in the way they need to to make the business work. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? You've really got to – because we're going to find ways businesses aren't going to work and there's plenty mm. of ways that you know, I've failed at lots of businesses. That's <laughs> really easy to do. But you can definitely not succeed unless you do that first trimester. What would you? What would your big tip to sort of get people to sort of stay comfortable in that discomfort of not quite knowing what it is yet? Yeah. Um, how would you get them to stay comfortable in that? Um, I think that when you're doing something that is new to you, discomfort is something you need to bring close to you and kind of make your friend. So maybe in some some of the same ways that um, you talk about stress, I imagine it's about coming to understand stress and discomfort is a form of is a form of stress. And I think that um, some of the ways uh, in the first trimester that I discuss, some of it sounds a little hippie, but it's actually incredibly useful about being in your body and about being um, like, you know, uh, being able to inquire as to what is your driver. I remember Steph from Steph's business bookshelf. She was like, oh, I heard her mention Oracle cards. And I was like, nah, I'm out of here. This is like, this isn't a business book for me. But um, but uh, she eventually saw that it was just one of the ways that people can remain comfortable in a, in a liminal space. I also find that with clients who are beginning a business they're feeling unsure about, making one investment in what their business looks like as a professional um, identity can often be very bolstering for their confidence, whether that's a logo or investing in um, some professional photography. It can begin to not let them bleed entrepreneur, as you said, but it can get them a little bit closer to beginning to think of themselves as a person that does this and that. 
Yeah, right. Because it's you don't have you. One thing you talk about in it, you don't have to completely ditch your other job and all that sort of stuff. You've got rent to pay and more, you know, you know, groceries to pay for and stuff. And sometimes you can't just jump both feet into it, but you can yeah. still do it professionally as a side gig for a little while. Um, I just want to back up a little bit because there was a yeah. quote that I I I noted in in your thing, and it was talking a little about getting a bit woo woo. And you yes. said, um, jump into the woo-woo pool because the water is warm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and it's amazing how easy it is to write off really, really good things as being a bit woo-woo and a bit out there, whereas they can actually really help. They can actually help you gain some clarity and help you work out exactly what it is you want to get. So how yeah. do you kind of – how do you get people to stay with that for a little while and, and be okay to be a bit woo-woo and pie in the sky? I think that they kind of need to give it a crack and they need to not feel like just because they're doing an activity that is about self-inquiry that it makes them like a super hippie of the type that they don't align themselves with. But you know what, Luke, it's the same on the other side. A lot of people who are more like woo-woo-ish, when you bring Tim Ferriss up in the four-hour work week, it makes them want to have a little vomit on their desk. Like it makes them, it gives them an, an equal response of like, those are not my values. This doesn't speak to me. But both schools, both both uh, both hemispheres are actually incredibly uh, important to understanding how you can be a purpose-driven business leader. So I find that um, when I'm speaking with clients who seem really hard business, um, I might tell them a little bit about some of the tools that I use for self-inquiry. So I call it woo-woo, right? Um but they're just really different ways of being able to hold a mirror up to yourself and see what you're thinking and see what seems true to you because businesses that are successful, you know, business is hard, as you know. You want something that you actually love doing or feels purposeful because there's going to be a lot of time when, you know, it might be a bit hard to run that business. So at the least it has to be on brand for you. Yeah, right. And that and that's about understanding exactly what that looks like for you. How what are the gifts that you want to actually give the world? And I think that's where this book works really well is that you yeah, you you're touchy feely as hell. You can tell from reading this book that yeah. you're touchy feely, but you've got that practical business grunt about you as well. And I really love the there's almost a yin and yang to that that you this book has both. You know, yeah, it has the touchy-feely woo-woo and it also has the, you know, you've got to sort your copyright shit out to make sure you don't get sued. You know what I mean? So it's – I love the balance that you've got with this book and um, I think someone that was really starting out in business would really embrace that because there's – you know, if you could just – even just touching on things like some of the perils we can fall in with copyright. Um, yeah. The amount of stuff we're all doing all the time that's infringing mm-hmm. copyright and – um just tell us a little bit about that and, and what we should sort of be a bit wary of and, and what we can do to mitigate some of those problems. I love talking about copyright to businesses. You big nerd. Um, because um, copyright is something that, you know, um, in many ways Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the digital spaces we live in, they are almost purpose-made to allow you to infringe copyright, which is what most of us do, you know, every time we share a meme. When we are using other people's work as part of our business, whether that's in a banner on our website, whether that's um, on our Instagram feed because it's a brand that we, we really like and want to share with our own um, our own audience, um, we put ourselves and our businesses at risk by not having effectively paid for or gained appropriate um, uh, permission for to use. And I think that 
like I, I've been executing social media for, you know, 14, nearly 15 years. Back when it began, it was pretty loose. It's still loose now, right? But it was really loose back then. And um, and we had we had clients that had websites built or were using media that had no provenance. Now, um, Getty, Getty Images, for example, they have software that does nothing but scrape the internet constantly to look for images that they own and then they send you a invoice that could be thousands and thousands of dollars for the I've actually got one of these before yes I have got one before and I tell you what scared the pants off me but it amped my it amped me up as a business owner so now I know that anything that Ruby Assembly sells it is 110% on point the ownership provenance is clear. So if you've received one, Luke, and I've received one, odds on, people listening to this um, podcast or watching the vlog, they'll have received one too, and it can be very costly as well as frightening. So, yeah. um, And I, I think that that speaks to sometimes the seriousness or the lack of seriousness with which businesses sometimes take their communications. Like they might think, oh, well, you know, Steve's a young dude. He does well on TikTok. Why don't we give our social media account or our, our blog account to Steve? Now, Steve might have great facility as an individual in terms of expressing ideas or flossing or whatever on TikTok, but it doesn't mean that he can do brand voice, that he respects copyright because he might not know to, that he, you know, all these all these steps that secure our businesses um, in a world where we're becoming increasingly digital. So hygiene around copyright is extremely important. I hope that everybody listening today if they take one thing from today's discussion, it's that copyright is so important and it can be really costly not to respect it. Well, it's it's also one of those things that I've found myself with this writing copy for my website and almost doing it as an afterthought. You've got to put something in here. Oh, what will I write about? And the way you talk about in this is that you've really got to get clear of what you want to take your customers from and to and what you want that copyright to say and to be able to say it in almost as fewer words as you want to. What advice would you give people? Because yeah, you're a copywriter and you can tell by when you read this book, there's some, there's some great metaphors and really cool little funky things going on there. What advice would you give people to actually you know, spice up their copy and actually have it so it, it hits the mark as quickly as it possibly can? Because we don't want to read Waffle, do we? No, and, and, you know, websites that have a lot of copy on them are those that are, you know, the, <laughs> the vacate rates of those sites are very high. I think the best way to think about your copy and making it really effective is to imagine the copy that you start writing for your website as a really big block of ice. And you get the first first draft, it's a huge block. And then you've got your little chisel and you, you crack away at it and it looks a bit different. It's a bit smaller, might be a bit rounder. And then you look at it again after a couple of days and you keep chipping away. And by the end, you've got a couple of great blocks that are going to be tip-top in a drink and it's really, it's really reduced. Good copy does not happen quickly and it doesn't happen the first time. So... A lot of people feel like sometimes when they come to us for copywriting or they're having their go of copywriting themselves, that it has to be perfect the first time. It really doesn't, and it's a moving feast. So the first time that you chisel yourself down to having um, copy that is really as few words as possible that expresses the biggest emotional feel about your brand as possible, you know, leave it for a few months and then come back to it. Nothing is ever over, I think, in terms of our businesses in iterating what we do, how we do it, and who we do it for. We even brought that out a little bit with the name of your busy business of Ruby Assembly. Can you tell us about the evolution of how Ruby Assembly came to become Ruby Assembly? Yeah, sure. I'm really glad that you picked up on this, um, actually. So when I first began Ruby Assembly, as it's known now, 
I I had a different name for it. Um, I had come from a career as an estate agent and an auctioneer, so I have a really hard business background. Um, and I finished up my career because I, I really wanted to go back to my heartland, which was comms, and I knew I wanted to do copywriting. I was sitting on the couch. I was watching my favourite movie, which is The Wizard of Oz, and I saw Dorothy Gale's feet come together. She clicked three times and she said, there's no place like home. And I thought, oh, Ruby Slipper, that's the perfect name for my business because it's magical, it's optimistic, you know, it has so many of the qualities that I myself like to think I encapsulate. Um, and we existed as Ruby Slipper um, doing lots of real estate content, thus there's no place like home for probably seven years. Um, Great little I, double play on words there too. Yeah, yeah. For it was a really real estate company, yeah. it's really cool. And, um, and the logo was his little like little slippers and I'd send people like, you know, Wizard of Oz related stuff. Anyway, it was a cute gimmick and it lasted for a while. Um, and then I, my business after seven years had really developed into something quite much bigger than me. And um, I had also received a letter from the lawyers who represent Warner Brothers. Um, Holy hell. That's right. So they had said that I was, they wanted me to cease and desist from using Ruby Slipper because they thought that it infringed on their own brand. Now, I'm not sure if any of our listeners here have any experience with copywriting trademark, but like trademarks exist in different categories. What Warner Brothers do with Ruby Slipper is in the entertainment space. Like it's a, it's a theater show. It's a movie. What we do with Ruby Assembly or Ruby Slipper as it was known, we're copywriters for business. They're not actually in the same category. And so my lawyer told me I could have fought it and I could have attempted to retain that name. Um, but he's like, these guys have heaps of money. So <laughs> work out what you'd like to do. And I took it as a positive Come on, sign. David, do you want to have a fight with Goliath here or not? Yeah, and I took it as a really positive sign that it was actually an open door for me to encompass more about what my business had become. And I had no resistance to changing the name at all, which I feel um, it just felt really it felt really easy to make that change. I didn't feel affronted. I felt like it was actually an opportunity. So that's how Ruby Slipper became Ruby Assembly and here we are. Right. And I guess that that's one of the things about someone who's, because you know, you're going to read this book if you're thinking about starting a business. And I think the idea that it doesn't have to be, there's two things that I really got out of it. One is that it doesn't have to be fully formed right from the start. You've got that first trimester to, to build it up. The second one to sort of get compliant and work out what it is. And then the th- third one to kind of get it out into the world. But I loved one of the things that you talked about with that is that you don't have to know how to do everything, that it takes a village. And could you explain uh, you know, that idea it takes a village to raise a child? I think it takes a village to raise a business as well, which you talk about in the book. And what sort of people do we need in our village and sort of who would you, who would you bring in? I love the idea of um, who, not how. Who can I bring yeah. in to help with this, not how do I have to learn how to do something? And you brought that to the, to the fore really well. So could you tell us about that a bit? I think that after anybody has had a dip their toe into their own small business, they'll recognise very quickly that time is a great um, is a great cost, and learning how to become expert in everything is not ultimately a possibility. So the people that you want in your village of those who are going to support, feed, nurture, and care for your child, um, the most important people include a lawyer, <laughs> an accountant. Initially, when you first begin, the people that will feel most important to you are actually going to be a graphic designer and a photographer 
and perhaps a videographer. Now, I like to say often that I'm better than a BNI because I make tons of referrals. I don't ask for nasty kickbacks and the village I've created around the people who serve um, my business and my business like my clients um, are impeccable and have the same kind of values we have. So um, I haven't, it doesn't make sense that Ruby Assembly just choose to keep growing tentacles and become expert in everything from dark arts and, and Google ads through to becoming, you know, expert photographers. It's really good to have your wheelhouse of expertise and to surround yourself with other people who have um, excellence in business practice but share your same values and you feel much more protected then, then as a business yeah. But the, the thing, I, I actually really liked the way at the start you said, you know, pay the extra money to get good photography, pay the extra money to have your, your website on point so it looks like a proper business because there's a little element of fake it till you make it a bit. You don't quite know whether you're going to get it, but you're certainly a lot better chance of getting ahead if it looks professional, if it looks like something that people could trust. And that's really, where that village becomes really important, doesn't it? And I really feel that... Um, a lot of people, by trying to DIY everything and bootstrap everything, they do themselves a little disservice because it doesn't look legitimate. We can tell, like our visual languages, humans can tell very quickly if something looks real to us or part of the visual language that we understand as being something that we pay for or if something looks a bit hackneyed. Um, so, and I find it's also really difficult for people in startups to sometimes part with the money for that because they feel like, oh, well, my iPhone will work well enough or, oh, well, I can do, I can do a logo on Fiverr. If you make compromises everywhere, every which way, you end up with a compromised um, offering and, and that's, you don't want to, you don't, you don't want to start with a disadvantage, you know? Yeah. I guess one of the things about that too is you, you have a good logo and you have a good, good photography and your website looks on point. It almost, yeah, it almost makes you believe that what you've got is something that that's a value and it's really good. If you don't have, if you don't give it enough value to pay for that sort of stuff and do it properly, then I think other people are going to see that too. Is that the point you're trying to make? Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, you know, when I run um, workshops on legitimacy in media, I always explain to the people to participating that it's not brain surgery; it's literally resourcing yourself with experts at a time when you have the that well, I guess the money to be able to pay for that. But even if you don't have a full budget for everything to be 110% perfect, start with one element that you can feel is strong to anchor yourself to. Because, like, if, if, if a Ponzi scheme like Bernie Madoff has taught us anything or all the different MLM cults that we might watch, um, we might watch Netflix documentaries about have taught us anything, most of it's marketing. There's like there's nothing unique about what's going on there, which isn't because I'm, you know, giving a shout-out to people who are frauds or anything like that, but you can actually, if you're a, somebody who wants to own a business or improve what you've got, you can actually do it. It's not magic. Yeah, I'm with you. But it's though, a lot of those you know, things like, yeah, we brushed over a couple of things there. Some people might not know what an MLM is, so it's a multi-level oh, marketing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, one of the things, I'm as I was reading this book, all I could think of is I went actually, I sort of put the book down and got my website out and looked at it. I went, yeah, some of my content is a really little bit shit. How do we actually, how do we go about finding the right person to help us with that copywriting and things like that that you, that you were talking about in the book? I think one of the best ways to find people who are, I guess, whether they're physically local to you or local to you in terms of your own network is actually to approach businesses that you um, admire or feel simpatico to. They don't need to be in the same category and I find that most business owners um, 
if you approach them in an earnest way, they'll often give you a little bit of time or point you in the right direction. If you really love the work of a photographer or you, you like a particular uh, language style that somebody has presented for their e-commerce, it's good to just kind of ask them the kind of supplies that they might use. And more often than not, they probably will give them to you. So yeah, right. I, rather than just going to LinkedIn or going to a Facebook group and saying, hey, guys, I've got $35 and I want to get a, I want to get a logo done, it's cool if you've only got $35, right? But don't go to... LinkedIn or Facebook and, and just ask because you'll get inundated with people who don't know what they're doing. Better to get referrals to one or two quality people, see their process. If you can't afford them now, you can say, well, it's not for me right now, but I could do it in, in eight or ten months um, and begin uh, begin professionalising your offering. So small steps. I think that like 100 Days of Brave, it's a catchy title, but the 100 days are nominal. If you do it in 100 days, Awesome. Awesome. Most people probably will not because it's a it's a really substantial undertaking. But even if you did it in like 150 days and you put the steps in place for professionalizing your business, if you have one, or doing ideation, compliance, and launch, you're going to be in a much stronger position than someone who's just like putting their hand to the wind and having a crack. Yeah. One of the ones, particularly in the launch part, is that a lot of people struggle with things not being absolutely perfect. And if it's absolutely perfect, I can't put it out into the world. You mentioned early on about having a minimal minimal viable product. Can we have a little chat about that and how people can actually work out, one, how to get one and when do they know that they've got a minimum viable product that's actually okay to set out in the world? So minimum viable product is just a fancy way of saying I have a functional offering, right? So it doesn't, minimum viable product sounds kind of like a bit techie. And I began using that phrase after I'd done like a a tech hack, like a a hackathon weekend where me and a couple of other people uh, designed a, a tech product over three days. And minimum viable product was just seeing that something had a market and kind of functioned as a piece of technology. Now, let's let's apply that to if you're a baker and let's apply that to if you're a business coach. So what you want to be able to work out is if there is demand for the product. So the first thing you want to do is have a look at your competitors and see what they're doing. Don't be dissuaded if you see a business that's five years in, six years in, and much more mature than yours. You don't need to recreate the wheel to have a successful business. My feeling is that there's room in the market for most everybody. So um, you don't need to feel that your business won't be viable if there are competitors. Everyone has competitors of one kind or another. So don't worry about that. But do observe what your competitors are doing and what you like and what you don't like. Then the next two most important parts of working out whether the product is viable, um, one is doing survey monkeys or paying a little bit of money to get some market research done via a, a, a company adjacent to SurveyMonkey so you can see what consumer sentiment is like around your offering. Um, so, for example, um, if your idea was to help people Airbnb their backyards right for afternoon tea parties, that might sound like a really cool idea to you. But you want to do, you, you want to, before you invest all that money in your logo and your photos and everything, you want to do a vox pop to see if there's actually the will in a in a customer to want to do that. And you might you might find that there is, but you might equally find that you might need to tweak the idea and perhaps there's another part of the share economy that you could focus on. Um, so that's what a minimum viable product looks like. It's something that you have tested to uh, to the point that you can with either surveying or even um, I've done box props on the street before where I'll just go to a communal area 
um, polite and bubbly. I will ask people what they think about a certain offering and whether or not um, that sounds like it, it could be a goal for them. That's, that's the level of testing I'm talking about. But I find that even at hackathons, a lot of people haven't done the, a lot of people haven't done that, that market testing. They haven't asked the question, is this something that someone wants? Yeah. And is willing to pay for it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I guess what the people that want to read this book are the ones that think that they have something that will work really well. How to, how to think that through how to plan that and then how to launch that. That's kind of our three trimesters, isn't it? So I guess if, right. if, if that's, if that sounds like you, then a hundred days of brave could be a really, really good book for you. Now, one of the things we always do in, on the Your Next Read podcast, cause we love reading and everything to do with books yes. is we have a thing called a fast five. And I haven't actually given you any prep for this. So you're actually going to have to do this cold. You're like, all right. So we ready. What are you reading now? I am reading Where the Crawdads Sing. I want to read that. Apparently it's awesome. It's like I the book everyone like, wants to read at the moment. I feel a bit basic for reading it, but I tell you what, the moment I started reading it, I can see why it was a bestseller. It's got pace. It's got like uh, big feels, a very authentic environment. It's a great read. Right. Okay. Um, what was your most memorable book as, as a kid and as a young person? Uh, my most memorable book was Ronya and the Robber's Daughter by Astrid Lindgren. Astrid Lindgren wrote um, Pippi Longstocking. Ronya and the Robber's Daughter is a tale of a little girl who lives with her dad, who's the robber chief, and um, all his, like, merry men in the forest. It's kind of set in a Romanian-type place. And um, the robber chief doesn't want his Ronya to become a robber. He wants her to um, to, to have, a, a, a like, a better life than that. Um, right. So she reads her books and stuff like that, but she... Um, she's actually quite a she's actually quite a good uh, robber, and she mucks in with the men. It was right. beautiful, something that I loved. That sounds really cool. What book should everyone read? I think my response is, "What book should everyone do?" It is called "My Shining Business" by Leonie Dawson, and it is a it's a book that you read, but it's a book that you do. It actually it looks a little woo woo, but it's hard business planning guide for people who have never looked at financials before. And right. I began doing that book probably six or seven years ago. I do it every year. Um, and I, I think that it has the potential to really change businesses. So I'd say My Shining Business by Leonie Dawson. And has there been a self-help book that's had a really big influence on you? Yes. Louise Hayes, You Can Heal Your Life. So it's a classic. It's an oldie but a goodie. Deep woo woo from How Hay House Publishing. You love a bit um, of woo woo though, don't you? And I, I, I love the business it. chick that loves a bit of woo woo. I reckon that's pretty cool. I remember reading it um, at a uh, like a, a, a entrepreneur's getaway um, in Hillsville in front of an open fire. Um, and at that time, I was um, my business was doing really well, but I was in an unhappy marriage at that time. And um, I think that there's something about reading that book that really helped me to unlock one of the doors to be able to exit that life and come into a new one. Okay. And the last one is what would your autobiography be called? Lived life on her own terms. Yes. Nice. I love yeah. that. And and I guess that's one of the things. 100 Days of Brave does. It teaches people how to live life on their own terms and to be able to put a business out into the world and to, it, 
you talked before about the books that you do, these sort of verb books, I call them. And I yeah. think yours is one of those. I think it's one of those books that this is a book that you, you can't just read and go, oh, yeah, that was good. It, there are bits that make, like I had to put it down and go and look at my website and look at things when I did this. Yeah. And it was fantastic like that. So, Yolanda, thank you for coming on your next read. And um, if anyone wants to, wants to start a new business, one of the best places to start, I think, would be 100 Days of Braves. Oh, Luke, thank you for your generosity in reading the book, explaining the free trimester so well, and, of course, including me in, um, in this discussion with your audience. I really appreciate it. Um, live life on your own terms, Luke. Woohoo! Yeah. Thanks for coming <laughs> on the show. Thank you for listening to Your Next Read. If you'd like to get a copy of 100 Days of Brave or any of the books we've had on this podcast, go to majorstreet.com.au and use the code YNR to claim your discount. I'm Luke Mathers. Thanks for listening.